0: Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past, Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. And welcome back to the Evoking History Podcast. This week I am joined by... A PhD candidate at Syracuse University, Thomas Borrell. How are you doing today, Thomas?
1: I'm doing well. How are you, Ben?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you. Thomas and I met at Marquette University, where Thomas got his master's, just like I did. Um, he had, was a year into the program when I came in and went on to bigger
1: and brighter things, as you were about to find out. I don't know about that, but I, I left Milwaukee. <laughs> If you did leave Milwaukee and you went to
0: the, the home of the orange, so at least more right. colorful things.
1: Um, I don't know. It snows here like five months out of the year, so it's actually a little bleaker. <laughs> that's that's impressive. That's somebody who came from the south to Milwaukee, but that's bleaker. So. Right.
0: <laughs> so Thomas is going to talk to us today about his dissertation. He does research into colonial Kenya, and i been wanting to have him on. I'm, I'm glad that we finally have had the chance to get together for quite a while. Uh, So let's start off, Thomas, uh, and give our listeners a little bit of your background about yourself, um, your education, and how you became interested in the topic of Africa writ large and then colonial Kenya in particular.
1: Right. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. Um, So I guess my educational background, you kind of spoiled the big thing. I got my master's degree at Marquette uh, in the global history emphasis like you did. So that was just a really eye-opening opportunity in terms of forming these kind of broader connections and looking at patterns that go beyond the nation state, which I feel like a lot of history um, falls into, especially like what you're exposed to as an undergraduate student. But before coming to Marquette, I got my B.A. in history at uh, Northern Illinois University. So still in the kind of Milwaukee, Northern Illinois area um, where I started to work a little bit on African history, but just took classes more broadly. So when I came to Marquette, I was interested in the global history emphasis with the sub-Saharan kind of um, sub-emphasis within it and took classes there with a lot of the awesome professors, I think, that you've mentioned from time to time on your podcast and maybe even had a couple of them on. Um, after finishing at Milwaukee, I came here to Syracuse where I started working on my PhD in African history um, with Professor Martin Shanguya and really taking advantage of the, the resources that are here locally. That's, that's something that I think is interesting and it's important to my educational background. Like, why am I in Syracuse? It's such a weird place to be, especially you would think of as an Africanist. But Syracuse is kind of um, really lucky in that we have the Kenyan National Archive Collection here. Uh, and what that is, is during the 1960s and early 1970s, a team from Syracuse University's East African Studies Program actually went over to the Kenyan National Archives in Nairobi and microfilmed the entirety of the archives as it was available oh, wow. in the, the late 60s. Yeah, So um, we have several million pages of documents here at syracuse that are officially still owned by the kenyan government and occasionally we will have officials from the kenyan national archive in nairobi come here um, like i've actually had dinner in syracuse with kenyan archival officials that i met in nairobi so it, it's kind of an interesting small world situation um, so There's a lot of resources here and there's a lot of stuff, so that's kind of why I moved on to Syracuse, just because it makes my life easier having so much material available. In terms of how I got interested in African history and Kenyan history in particular, um, I've just always been really interested in kind of questions of identity, um, questions of... Uh, diverse places where there's a large kind of mix of different peoples. And you look at Kenya, not only do you have a diverse African population, you have, you know, Bantu-speaking groups along with Nilotic-speaking groups. It's kind of a mixing place within Africa. You know, you don't want to homogenize the continent and assume that everyone in there has been the same. So it's a a melting pot within Africa. Uh, But then you have on the coast – Um, Before colonization, you have a growing um, Arab population. You have a growing um, South Asian population. And then as colonization happens, you start to get settlers. So Kenya itself just becomes one of the most kind of diverse places in the world in terms of these different cultures and peoples coming together. And I just find like a lot of the questions that brings up fascinating. Um, And I think it's an important history that's really understudied. Um, you look at topics in American history, um, take the Civil War or something like that, and there's been more published on the Civil War than the entirety of Kenyan history. Um, and I think that needs to be corrected. So kind of working on that, you know, it, it feels important.
0: Um, well, I completely agree with that. Um, it's, it's funny to me that you bring up the Civil War as an example, because when people would ask me why I was doing North African history, I would always feel like the world doesn't need me to write another Civil War book. Um, so I definitely yeah. agree with you on that aspect of it. I, I found, found it interesting that you have access to the Kenyan National Archives there at Syracuse. That is yeah. fantastic. And But it kind of leads me to a question, why then... I'm sure this is in the records, too. Why did you choose a colonial period topic as opposed to something more modern?
1: Right. So, I mean, in terms of looking at material available, um, there's a lot more that is accessible on colonial Kenya than on post-colonial Kenya. Uh, and I think when I was framing my topic, and once I get into my research, you'll see why this this takes place. I think I was a little intimidated as a, like a first-year PhD student, especially because my advisor, he does colonial Kenya himself. So mm-hmm. I think that that kind of drove me a little bit to colonial Kenya, just because it was a little more familiar. Uh, but now as I'm assessing and looking at my research now, I find that it bleeds into the post-colonial a bit. And I definitely think if you know, I'm one of the very lucky few – I'm not counting on it at all – that ends up with a tenure-to-act job or something where I could do more research that I would want to research in the post-colonial just because I think that there's, there's a lot of topics that are there that just haven't been looked at because people have shied away from it like I am. So I don't think I'm guilty of falling into kind of that pattern. Um, but I also think that you look at a lot of topics – um and a lot of works of history that have come out in the last 10 years and they they're trying to get rid of that binary of this is a colonial topic Mm -hmm. or this is a Mm post-colonial topic because i think you look at a, a lot of issues um even structures of government and there there isn't like this this huge rupture point like you would assume there was i mean a lot of the new kenyan state they they take the same structures of government like the actors change uh But a lot of stuff doesn't. So I also think we need to try to work to break down this idea that colonial Kenya is a completely different situation than post-colonial Kenya, because I think a lot of topics should be looked at inclusively of both of those periods. Of course. And I mean, that makes a lot
0: of sense to me, too, Um, especially when we think about a lot of African history as it's taught in universities is taught from about, I don't know, maybe – Around 1450 or so to the present, um, and that's yeah. considered modern. And so that is compressing because the colonial moment is so tiny in comparison to other historical yeah. eras. Uh, um, that treating yeah. them so distinctly is does take some of the air out of the room. And I think you're right on that.
1: I mean, when I when I've taught um, like the the modern African survey, which I have a problem of even how that's phrased, but that's how it's listed right. here. Yeah. Um, you know, I make a point of mentioning to my students that in pretty much every modern country of Africa. When colonization started to when colonization ended, there were a group of people that were alive for that whole period. You know, a lot of areas are colonized in the 1890s, and then it ends in the 1960s. You had people who were 80 years old who remember it starting and then remember it ending at that time. So it's it's a very brief period. Um, I don't want to minimize the damage that colonization had and the challenges that it continues to create today. But I think there's such a focus on that brief period of African history that it has um, resulted in there being larger gaps that still need to be addressed in pre-colonial African history and now in post-colonial African history. And there are some great people doing post-colonial African history right now and pre-colonial African history. They're just much smaller than I think um, those groups of scholars should be.
0: I completely agree with that. I, I definitely do not think that there are enough Especially here in America, and it's, it's hard for me to say in Europe or um, in Africa itself or Asia for that matter. The, the amount of scholars doing work on the continental history, and I think that there is also a, thankfully, a small group of scholars who are doing global or transnational, whatever you want to call it, and showing these yeah. interconnections because this none of this occurs in a vacuum, of course. Right. And there have been connections between Africa, Europe, and the United States or the Americas, I should say, for a very long time, and we really need to think about that and trying to tell a complete
1: story. Yeah, I mean, if, if like anyone listening is kind of curious about those connections and how you would do this broader, unperiodized history, I think a, at least in East Africa a good name to start with would be Jeremy prestolt's work. He has done just some phenomenal scholarship on this. Excellent. I will tweet that out um, so that people can have a a chance to look at that because I don't think that I'm familiar with that one, honestly. Oh, okay. He said some really cool things. Highly recommend him. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely add that to the list. So let's talk a little bit more about your own research.
0: So, what is it ex- exactly that you're doing?
1: Yeah. So right now, my dissertation, uh, as it is now, and of course, you know, I'm just ending my fourth year. Um, and the research isn't completely done. COVID kind of cut short my research stuff. I should be in London right now uh, mm-hmm. looking at archival things there. But as it stands right now, my dissertation is looking at competing conceptions of childhood um, in colonial Kenya. And then, like I was mentioning earlier, hopefully bleeding into at least the first decade or so of post-colonial Kenya. So within this, I'm looking at how various organizations and actors in colonial Kenya we're articulating different and changing discourses of regarding questions of childhood. So I mean, things like how should children be treated? Um, when does childhood end? I still don't think we have an answer to that. And I think it's constantly changing uh, in societies throughout the world. How should parents treat children? What's the relationship of ch- between children and the state? Um, what's re- the relationship between other children and each other? Like how should they treat each other? Um, what's appropriate? to be taught to children, that kind of stuff. Um, So I'm looking at kind of these questions and then how different groups try to articulate and persuade um, other groups within Kenya. And within this, I make the argument to to borrow Helen Tilley's term, but utilize it in a different way that, Colonial Kenya itself became kind of a living laboratory uh, for these different actors and organizations to reconsider and project their own beliefs regarding these questions. Um, Because you look at childhood in the early and mid-20th century, and it's changing all over the world, Um, and it's changing in Kenya. uh, And Kenya itself becomes a really profound place for all of these questions because You know, the British missionary organizations and Africans themselves aren't just thinking about childhood in terms of, you know, their immediate family. They're thinking about, okay, if we define childhood in this way, what does that mean for how we treat African children compared to how we treat settler children? So you start to have the bifurcation of laws based on which group you're talking to. And just because Kenya becomes um, really this a lot of questions start to pervade. Are a lot of questions regarding childhood start to pervade the colonial state. So there's a lot of attention being paid to this. Um,
0: yeah, so what is causing the um, conversation about childhood to develop? Um, I love the fact that you're using Helen Tilley's work. I, I found that to, to be one of the better books I read in my, one of my seminars. And is it simply a, a matter of whether it be colonial administrator or uh, a missionary attempting to set up, you know, um, a, the reins of power, the the, the way to administrate the um, territory, or is it pushback from the locals to try and massage that power so that it favors them in
1: some way? Who was initiating the yeah the conversation about childhood? It's it's all of it. Um, okay. You know, it, I, I wouldn't, this is not a one-way conversation. Mm-hmm. In something that I'm trying to flush out in this, um, this is where you know, it, I'm really trying to scour for evidence, but I, I have the threads to show that it's happening. It's not just a one-way conversation of the British or other international groups influ- influencing childhood in Kenya. I think you look at some of how these colonial administrators are talking about childhood, and you can see how local African beliefs and ideologies of childhood are impacting how they're thinking about their own children or their own future children. So... The first kind of place I start is looking at, or I hope to start in my dissertation, is looking at these early conversations about childhood and age. Uh, And I'm looking in a few different places. So the first is the battle over control of children. Um, This becomes an issue in the late teens and 20s when missionaries were becoming upset that uh, uh, these so they're they're in especially central and they're starting to educate really this first group of african children to try to convert them to christianity and these missionary organizations are getting upset because parents will remove the children for various reasons it might be to undergo circumcision ceremonies to come of age it might be to utilize their labor in a familiar way um or something else and they're just pulling them out and the missionaries see this as like a gross violation they'll be like we've educated this child for two three years yeah we want to do it to more, he's not finished yet. So that ends up resulting in the colonial state passing a law in 1926 that basically gives missionary organizations providing education the ability to withhold giving a child back if they want, unless the parents would pay for basically the entirety of what the missionaries say the cost of that education was up to that point.
0: Oh, wow. Like um, kind of an so, extortion thing then.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, it doesn't look like this was actually widely used, but it did give missionaries kind of this reassurance that if they really wanted to do this, they might at least be able to get some money from the parents. So you have these kind of early things literally about the physical control of children's bodies going on the books and colonial law. But it's not just the battle over African children, uh, it's also the battle over settler children. So one of the things I'm doing, and I'm hoping this will be a section of my first chapter, is I'm looking at um, accounts of childhood by settler children Uh, and this can be even by famous people like beryl markham uh lewis leakey they all have these long autobiographies um, where they recount growing up in kenya and they articulate that their childhood in kenya was very different from their british peers it was much more they tend to say like they they had a range of independence that was unavailable if they would have grown up in england or another place like that and they credit that to their success I, I mean Leakey himself says he's, he views himself as almost having a Kikuyu childhood because his friends were Kikuyu and he went through initiation and stuff like that. So you have kind of this perspective even by you know, within the settler community and children there that their childhood is unique within the mm-hmm. British Empire. Um, So you have all of these various questions kind of coming up within these different groups. Um, And something that I'm hoping to show is how children themselves played an important role in this. Um, Maybe not in dictating policy, but through their actions, they could kind of push an issue one way or the other. Um, And often they would do what gave them the most power or the best situation. So they might bounce back between regimes of... Um, whether or not they were considered a child or an adult or how far along in adolescence they were based on what that could maximize um, what they wanted in any given situation. So children themselves are playing an important role in these conversations, which I think is fascinating and really hasn't been brought out by very many people at all, at least in colonial Kenya. No.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think childhood is still a growing area within the historiography anyway, um, which is, it's it's kind of... I don't want to say ironic, but it is interesting that you are focusing on childhood, considering the, um, up until the end of this semester, the chair of the, our department, when we were both there, Dr. James Martin, yeah. who is one
1: of the leaders in the childhood. Absolutely, he's one of the go-to names. It's funny, he offered a research seminar on children's history when I was at Marquette, but it was my first semester. Uh, mm-hmm. so the graduate director at the time was like, "You're not taking a research seminar your first semester. You can't do that." Yeah, yeah.
0: That's, that's very interesting. So that that brings up a couple of questions. One, I want to yeah. backtrack just a little bit, and the only reason I ask this is because I know that you have done research on uh, female genital mutilation. And when you were talking about right. circumcision, is is that included in this or was this primarily male children?
1: Yeah, so um it's both. okay, So actually, the chapter I'm trying to write right now is dealing with the issue of both female and male circumcision. So um from the the female circumcision point, that's a that's a major mark in Kenya's history um the it's called the female circumcision controversy but i think circumcision is a bit of a misnomer it's it's genital mutilation fgm as we would call it today um and that's a huge moment in these competing conceptions of childhood because it really forces these different articulations among the kikuyu and among british missionaries especially about how they believe children should be treated what was appropriate and it wasn't just the operation itself Mm -hmm. so one of the strongest missionary objectives in all of Objections in all of this is that in the education, uh, in the ceremonies leading up to the act of uh, circumcision or genital mutilation itself, there would be dances and stuff that would exhibit sexual behavior. It was a form of sex ed, which the missionaries in Kenya, still very much in a Victorian mindset, just completely objected to. They're like, we shouldn't talk about this. This is a private thing. Sex should not be public like that. Um, so you have a lot of these kind of questions of childhood that are at the center. Uh, of the circumcision controversy, and then children themselves, especially girls, play a, a huge role in this kind of kakuyu upheaval and reaction against these efforts to ban the practice. So that's a big part of it. Yeah, but it's it's also male circumcision. One of the the ongoing issues, especially in areas where. Um, African labor was essential to the settler economy was when male circumcision should be performed. So especially in central Kenya, you end up having laws that restrict the timing of when male circumcision could happen. So instead of at any given point throughout the year, the British end up, at least in, in certain areas, implementing laws that it could only happen three months out of the year, those three months generally when labor was not needed because child labor, especially male child labor, was essential to to this so um coming of age and circumcision plays a a big part of that and i'm trying to work out exactly how i'm going to frame that in the chapter right now but it really becomes this kind of flashpoint especially because for the kikuyu who are one of the main actors in this they're one of they're they're the ones driving um this reaction against efforts to ban uh fgm this is coming of age this is when a child becomes an adult But the British, especially the missionaries, they're viewing these as, you know, adolescent girls. These are still children that need protection from this. Um, And then it becomes just a really international moment when you start having politicians, especially some of these early female parliamentarians in the UK, like um, the Duchess of Athol and others that are seeing this and are reacting against it from within the women's movement within England. So it, it really starts to intertwine all of these International questions of gender, childhood, uh, one's control over their body, questions like that. No, that's a, a lot there.
0: Um, so it's, it's I
1: know, that could be a dissertation itself, right? <laughs> it could,
0: it could. So I, I'm really interested to see how you, you tease all that out, because you're right, especially, and I'm not, uh, could you tell our, our listeners what uh, the age range that the, these ceremonies were typically taking place? Because you do bring up the yeah. point of this being a transition into adulthood, but they're still conceived as children by the, the yeah. British
1: yeah, so for the for boys, it ranged because they were um, less common. So circumcision ceremonies might only happen um, in a locality once every six, seven years. Mm-hmm. So it could be anywhere from 13 to 18. Um, so there's a bigger range there. But for girls, because um, Kikuyu practice uh, dictated that it happens before menstruation, like a girl would you know go through puberty. Generally, these girls were 11 or 12. The expectation was that they would go through this, and then within a couple years after that, they'd be married. Um, so, this is a much earlier coming of age and transition, especially for girls uh, in Kikuyu society, than the British had at this point. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, another thing that you mentioned there that uh,
0: I want to ask about is uh, you talk about the use of labor, especially amongst boys. Um, Were there other areas in which the colonial administration's need for labor and the missionaries' zeal for education, but it has as far as dominion over the the childhood, uh, over the body of the the colonized people?
1: Oh, absolutely. So this is actually one of the flashpoints between missionaries and the the colonial state, because the colonial state— its bottom line is always like we want to make money. Yeah. So the colonial state is actively like looking for ways to engage children while still looking respectable. Um, it actually becomes really interesting, especially during World War II. When the colonial state in Kenya is basically, you know, I have documents where they're talking about, um, yeah, we realize we're breaking like the International Labor Organization laws, but we think as long as no one in Britain finds out, we're we're fine on that. Um, But missionaries, they see labor is disrupted. They want to keep these children in their schools and when children have to leave to perform labor that's something that a lot of missionaries object to you have really famous figures in kenyan history like archdeacon owen who are writing about this in british newspapers and trying to call attention to it the, the child labor is profound and that the colonial state really isn't doing anything so missionaries are actually the ones uh, at least early on that are trying to spur some of these reforms to at least raise the age of when it would be legal for children for a child to leave his parents uh, and go work somewhere away from them um so you have them is one of the main actors in trying to push that kind of I guess, uh, this phys- limit on physical age of when a child could actually go work. Sure. So that is, you're 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 absolutely, like you've, you've identified a key point. That is one of like the flashpoints between like two different fractions of the British.
0: Now, as you mentioned
1: earlier, um,
0: that this is, Kenya is a, a melting pot. So there's more than one linguistic group there. Yeah. So that there would be different customs amongst these people. Did we see a lot of then... You know, if we have the – on one axis, we have the colonial administration and the um, clergy. Is there then various axes amongst the, the different linguistic groups as well?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, whether you look at central Kenya along the coast, western Kenya, there are different practices everywhere um that's mm-hmm. why i'm i'm not trying in writing about this i'm actively trying to avoid use, like using the word like kenyan african population right. and go specific to um the ethnic group because like there's so many varied practices amongst themselves which is why you look at what issues drive conflict in certain parts of kenya among certain groups and they tend to be different because you have all of these different ideologies and beliefs them it's just it, it makes it tough to write about but it's a lot of fun to look at because there's just so much going on it's such a like a diverse and complicated political economy when you look at these issues
0: yeah without a doubt I mean that much this is going to be uh, let's let's actually talk about formatting a little bit because are you going yeah. to do you want to do that in like give each ethnic group its own chapter and talk about it that way or maybe regionally or or how do you envision the the finished project working out
1: yeah i mean that's i think that that's going to be the toughest part is the organization of this um right now there's really one book that i think deals with childhood in kenya or coming of age of kenya and specifically in a really like good way. And that's Paul Akebach's, um Men of a Certain Age. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have that title right. And he actually he does like several different case studies. It's not a traditional like four or five chapter book. You, know, you have a lot of right. specific points where he moves on. So what I'm thinking of doing is framing this along how children's bodies themselves tried to be controlled and looking at that in several different ways. Um, so, you know, our circumcision's come up. I want to look at how the sexualized body becomes some, you know, an issue. I want to look at how the physical body, like the labored body, the hands become a topic of debate. I'm going to look at education. So I'm not going ethnic group by ethnic group, but I've kind of picked out some of what I think are the major flashpoints in these competing conceptions of childhood when tensions boiled over. Um, And looking at that and certain ethnic groups are going to receive more attention than others. Certain um, actors within the colonial state are going to receive more attention. This is, this is several books worth of material when you look at childhood in Kenya. I'm just trying to, you know, kind of look at how this idea of competing conceptions in a living laboratory motivated a lot of these kind of flashpoints and, and issues.
0: Well, I think that's very good. I think that's actually a very smart way to, to do it, because that way, you instead of uh, you know structuring it in such a way that it it feels disconnected by showing that there are these various flashpoints that are all kind of occurring around the same time and at different levels yeah. it shows just how
1: dynamic the situation is it is and part of even this is motivated by the laws itself so you look at how you know child adolescent juvenile are defined mm-hmm. and colonial law is a mess So in terms of, like, how those definitions operate, like, what age do they go up to, um, who exactly falls under that, it's different in education, it's different in labor, it's different in social welfare. Until the mid-1950s, when they actually get a committee together and they issue this big report where it basically – puts together a list of these several dozen definitions that the colonial states had and be like, we need to synchronize these and offers kind of what becomes accepted colony-wide r- right as the colonial period is ending. Um, well, that, that leads me to another question, and you may not have an answer to
0: this. Um, since it, you did say that they, these weren't really being codified until the mid-1950s, does that have anything to do with the Mau Mau uprising, or is it just a coincidence that it's happening at the same time?
1: I mean, I think everything in the 50s has uh, at least loose connections to Mao Mao. Sure. Um, this, uh, yes and no. So what happens is after World War II, they form this parliamentary committee to like issue a report on the state of children in Kenya. Um, this report really goes nowhere. The committee's just two individuals, from what I found. Um, and nothing happens. So then, in the early 1950s, uh, after nothing's happened for like four or five years, they reconstitute the committee under the leadership of Humphrey Slade, who is this kind of big advocate and um, individual dealing with, like, children in Kenya. And this can, his, his involvement in this continues well into post-colonial Kenyan history as well. Um, and this becomes known as the Slade Committee, the Slade Report, um, and that really issues some of this. And one of the driving motivations, this is the the yes in that, is that they're trying to figure out, like, how do we improve social welfare in the state of children because they're, they're identifying Mao Mao as partially coming from this lost generation, um, or at least some colonial state are. Everyone in yeah. Kenya had different opinions on Mao Mao. Um, yeah, and that's just its own mess. Yeah. So. yeah, it is. There really needs to, you know, this is something I've told people about. We need a podcast that goes over the history of Mao Mao. It would be a really interesting thing uh, to kind of look at in depth.
0: Yeah, I would actually so there you love to have somebody.
1: There's your next one. <laughs>
0: well, I would love to have somebody come on and talk about it if for no other reason than I was at a conference. Gosh, I guess it's close to four and a half years ago now, Um, and the paper I was giving – I was on a panel with other African historians, and the paper I was giving was about Mau Mau, and one of the people in the audience had been interned as a Mau Mau um, rebel. Yeah, so that was – Where was this? It was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was at the National Association of African-American Studies. Okay.
1: That's that's really interesting.
0: It was. Um, it led to a a very intense but informative Q and A session. Oh, I um, can imagine. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, I'm back to what you're doing. Another thing that you brought up, uh, that you have these colonial children talking about how they they think that they can can consider themselves Kikuyu or whatever by yeah. their childhood. That kind of makes me wonder because. When I think of, and I can't remember the, the, the book author, but there is um there is an author who, who makes the claim that the metropole identity is formed in the colonies, that it's a reflection of that lived experience that then forms the idea of what it means to be uh, somebody from the United Kingdom or London or yeah. what have you. Um, So I, I, it would be interesting, and this isn't what you're doing, you've got enough here, but to look at say, you know, remembrances of children who were raised in India or in other British colonial projects to see if they felt the same way, if there is something about being a child on that colonial frontier that yeah. is similar.
1: No, that's, I mean, at least in some of the settler children autobiographies I've looked at, that's a huge part of it, this idea that they're they're special because their childhood was different. That growing up away from British society while still being British really shapes who they are is is really a big part there. I think that's part of why so many of them have felt compelled to publish Mm -hmm. uh, material on this. Uh, But I can't think of anyone who's looked at that colony-wide. It would be also really interesting to look at people who are raised um, you know, say Africans in Kenya or South yeah. Asians in yeah. colonial India, who then move to the UK and look at their childhood differently, like coming to oh, that's this, a good- you know a metropole of empire. I mean, there's just so many questions and things to look at dealing with like global childhoods that just haven't been examined, uh, because outside of the, like the the history of childhood in Western Europe and in the United States, which themselves Themselves are small compared to other historiographies. This is very a very new uh, topic, new questions people are asking, as you mentioned when we started the podcast. Yeah, no, definitely. You are
0: um, at a very interesting nexus there of understudied historiographies that you're working in. Um, so I, I definitely yeah. compliment you on that, um, and I look forward to the dissertation actually coming out to where I can read a copy.
1: I look forward to it being finished. I'm just starting mine, right <laughs> Emma. <I'm all> right. <laughs> writing in COVID is hard man so many distractions you can't go to your writing spots.
0: yeah well that's true well let's talk about that a little bit because i think that that is something that is changing not only our discipline but all of academia and in fact the world yeah um you know um aside from i also want to talk to you about language because working in africa means working in different languages right um so i would like to get your thoughts on that and, and what how your language training has gone, but just the realities of being on the ground, whether in the United Kingdom or in Kenya, when during a time of pandemic.
1: Yeah. uh, I mean, it was, it was surreal being in Kenya when the COVID stuff there. So I was in Kenya um, for three months in the fall. So from the start of August until early November. And then again, from, early February until mid late March when COVID got real globally and everything started shutting down. So I was actually the last researcher in the Kenya national archives, um, before they shut it down. And to my knowledge, just what's happening with archive staff, it's still not open to the public yet. Um, so it was, it was just such a surreal day. Me and another researcher um, who's local to Nairobi, his name's Alfred, anyone who's worked in the K&A will know him. Um, we got there early in the morning, and then at like 9.30, they shut the doors and stopped letting people in. So it was just like working in the archive that day with just the staff and us um, and people trying to figure out what was going on. And then by the next morning, they announced that they were shutting the Kenya National Archives down for at least 30 days. And I don't think it's reopened. Um, I was lucky. I was only supposed to be there for another two weeks to do research. So um, most of my Kenya stuff that I had planned to get done this year got done. Um, But like I said earlier, I was uh, scheduled to take a five-week research trip to the U.K., um, that would be going on right now to, to hit up some archival materials in Scotland, um, and then the London area, and that's that's stopped. Um, it's even just the struggle of I'm not sure what's going on at Marquette, but Syracuse University's libraries have been closed the entire time I've been back, so I haven't been able to get like any books I might want to reference that aren't available on ebook, um, and I think a lot of people are struggling with that.
0: Yeah, the libraries here are are shut down as well. And although there is supposed to be some further consideration of what's going on, up until the end of this month, we are recording this on June 9th. So June 30th, all research or any other travel associated with the university is banned. So even if the place you were wanting to go to is open, you can't go with university funds. Um, So it is really – I mean, you know – and I, I'm not going to complain too much because now that I'm uh, I'm, I'm doing my dissertation, as am almost a completely American dissertation, so I don't have to go anywhere other than what are ostensibly local um, archives. I mean, you know, right. still a lot of travel because America's big, but yeah, it, it's not the same as traveling internationally. So I'm lucky in that way. And if it just makes it another year, it makes it another year. Yeah. I'm healthy and in the wake of the – outstanding, or not outstanding, the insane death toll in the United States related to COVID-19. I can't
1: really complain too much. Yeah.
0: But it is worrying and, and definitely is. frustrating.
1: I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm feeling this and I, you're a year behind me, so that's not long you're going to feel this too. There's also the concern about jobs, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, is universities, at least a lot of the ones I've looked at, have completely freezed hiring for next year. Mm-hmm. So my initial hope was to actually apply for some jobs this fall uh, because I think you know if I keep up a good writing pace, I could finish next summer, and that would be a realistic thing that, to start teaching. But that's just not going to happen. There aren't going to be anyone. There, no one's going to be hiring. So now I'm on the six-year track, and I think a lot of people are in the same boat where our programs have functionally been extended by one year. Yeah. Um, and I'm lucky that I'm at a, in a program at a school that's guaranteeing like an extra year of funding, but I know not everyone's in that situation. So, um, hopefully universities do the right thing and make sure that we're just kind of not lost.
0: Yeah. That's going to be the thing is realistically the job market was pretty dour anyway. Yeah. Um, and this certainly isn't going to help matters. Uh, so, no. um, I know in having conversations with the other colleagues here, that there is a sense of transitioning to Alt act instead of looking for faculty jobs. Career also, diversity,
1: Ben. Career, career diversity. diversity.
0: That's right. That's right. I, I keep forgetting that's the new term. Um, which, you know, uh, yeah. it's something that I had in mind anyway, so this hasn't really lit that fire under me. Um, but I do see people who had always said before that they were, yeah, well, I'm at least going to try the job market and see what happens. Then I'll look. But some of them are just like, I'm just going to start looking yeah. for something
1: else and not even try and stay in academia. Yeah. I mean, that was my my initial hope, like job wise, when I started the PhD was to teach at a community college because I've, I've gone to community college and I think in a lot of ways, those two years were the most important two years of my life and shaping me into someone that I'm proud to be. Uh, but those colleges are some of the hardest hit in these situations. So I don't anticipate they're going to really be hiring at all in the next several years, especially with the giant enrollment drop that's expected in yeah. 2024, 2025. So I'm, I'm fully looking at various things to do outside of academia. What are some of the things you're considering, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I mean, government positions would always be good, but I wouldn't want to work in the current administration, whether it would be like the foreign service or something else mm-hmm. at the state department. Um, that, that's, you know, if we have an administration i would be happy to work in, that's something that I could think about. Um, non-governmental organizations, INGOs, um, right. like the UN, Amnesty International, yeah, stuff like that, that need people who have expertise in these areas. Um, you know, I think most of us are open to some kind of museum work, library work, stuff like that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to be self-limiting. I, You know, we have sure. all these tools like Imagine PhD that really preach how, how valuable our skills are. So I guess I'm just going to apply widely and hope the job market's better in two years, you know, broadly than it is right now.
0: Right. Yeah, no, and I think that that's uh, probably the smart way to go about yeah. it, um, you know, and – You've mentioned just about anything that you would want to consider. Then, uh, of course, Archive will work, too, working as an yeah. archivist, especially with your experience working in archives. Um, that's always a, a possibility, too.
1: I know. Uh, I felt like I've done the range between uh, the Kenya National Archive, which is its own special place, and then the British National Archive, which is its you know, completely opposite in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um
0: well, that's a question. What was yeah. it like actually doing research in the, the National Archives in Kenya?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the Kenya National Archive is a really special place. So um, if anyone's familiar with Nairobi, they'll tell you it's really in the heart of the city. Um, the archive is the old Bank of India building. It's across the street um, from the Hilton Hotel, which is like the, the premier Hil- the, like hotel in Nairobi, and... Um, This is the first skyscraper in Nairobi. It's really at the heart of the central business district. You know, you can walk in five minutes to the Supreme court to stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first thing is it's it's louder than your average archive, right? You have all of this traffic. You have um, matatus, you know, which are small buses that are very common in Nairobi. You have uh, boda-bodas, which are motorcycles, dropping people off, picking people up right in front of the archive. You have people who are just sitting in the space out there, you know, waiting for their ride or just kind of hanging out. Um, in the archival reading room itself, you know, you walk in there they open the windows. You get all of the noise that comes in. So it's not a quiet space. It's a very loud space, which I think is different for archives. So, um, you know, one week they were doing a Red Cross blood drive, like literally 20 feet outside of the reading room walls. So it would be... Them with a DJ playing music and then trying to get people to donate blood, which I found hilarious because it would be the the DJ would speak in Swahili and uh-huh. then just interrupt in English, donate blood, save a life or whatever the Red <laughs> Cross's slogan is there. Yeah. Um. And then you know, three weeks later, they're filming a cell phone commercial on archival property with a bus and you know, 40 actors. So then you get all the noise of them producing this. So, you know, in terms of just like the environment you're in, it's different. Um, and it, then you start to look at like recalling documents. Um, they do not have the ability to preserve and store documents the way a lot of uh, American or British archives would. So you might put in a request for six documents and get three back because three others are lost. Yeah. Um, you might recall a document and then find out that it has such substantial water damage that you know you're not really going to be able to get much out of it because only two actual you know pages in there are, are legible. Mm-hmm. So. You do have challenges like that, but you also have a really dedicated um, staff. You have some of the most hardworking, amazing people there. So, you know, anyone who has worked in the Kenyan National Archive knows Richard and Bonnie. Richard has been working at the Kenyan National Archive since 1968, um, or 1964, sorry, 1964. So he started working there in 1964, and he still shows up almost every day, even though they forced him to retire in 1998. Um, So it's 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 funny. I mentioned. uh, that we have all of this material from the Kenyan National Archive here in Syracuse. Occasionally you'll come across a page that, because it was crumpled, you have someone's hands like holding down the paper flat. And I found this out from another historian um, that uh, often those hands are Richard's hands and he's That's still amazing. there at the Kenyan National Archive. Um, and because they've changed the coding system several times over the last you know, 50 plus years that he's been there he's literally the only person that can find some things uh, that will know where the box of material is so you have dedicated individuals like him that really make it kind of this special place did you get a chance to talk to him at all because I'm sure he has some amazing stories oh yeah no I talked to Richard quite a bit he's a very social guy um, that's where the Kenya National Archives are just in a, like an atypical uh, space to do research in a really amazing way is you have a lot of conversations that go on. It's not a quiet reading room uh, because of the, the outside noise and because you have people from all walks of life coming in there. So you might have elderly individuals who are trying to get research on their own internment during Mau Mau, or their parents' internment on Mau Mau. You might have people who just paid the archive fee because they want to go up and read a newspaper in quiet. So you might have 30, 40 people in the archive and then actually only like two people doing research on a dissertation or a monograph or something like that um uh, you can get busy but not necessarily in a traditional like academic archival research way which i think is great and then the building itself is shared with a museum so occasionally you'll have like the reading room will be interrupted by like 40 school kids peeking in through the door and trying <laughs> to right. see what people are doing um so yeah i talked with richard quite a bit and then it's amazing because once you get to know richard and you see how valuable he is you start looking at books on kenyan history and realize he's thanked in pretty much every acknowledgement by someone who was at the kenyan national archive like i think you could line an entire like library stack with books that just thank richard
0: it sounds like he's invaluable so i will He is
1: so. he is um But it's just a really fun space uh, to to be in the Kenyan National. Very different than like the British National Archive in London, where, you know, it's the most rigid, sterile environment you can imagine, where they make you bring anything you want to bring in through like clear plastic bag. They'll take the the metal tips off your pencil erasers, stuff like that. Um, You know, Kenyan Archive has life in it, which is just really fun. It's really special to be in.
0: No, it does sound. It sounds very vibrant. And, uh, you know, I actually like these the thought of that because it makes it feel like this is not stilted and divorced from the community. It is part of the living. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so have you had to do much with Swahili? Because um, the colonial administration you're working yeah. with, of course, is in English, so I didn't know how much additional language training you've had to do.
1: Yeah, so my primary research language is English. I haven't had to do a ton with Swahili. Um, occasionally, I will come across Swahili documents, and I'm fine to work with them. I've gotten my Swahili good enough that I can, you know, sight read it, and a couple of words I don't understand, just pull a dictionary. But no, English is the primary the language there, which is kind of disappointing. I would actually would like to research more in, in Swahili, which is why I'm hoping if the world returns back to normal that I might be able to go over next summer and do kind of an oral interview project um, and capture some of the questions I have. Um, with people about the 1960s and 70s and what happened sure. in the first decade of independence, like what changed in terms of like child experiences, how they perceived education, stuff like that. Um, and those interviews would be primarily in Swahili. But no, Kenya Kenya is so interesting when it comes to language, um, because not only – basically everyone at least in urban areas speak english or some english but the swahili they speak in nairobi completely different than the swahili they speak in mombasa um the swahili they speak in nairobi it's really more shang which is kind of this intermixture of swahili english new slang words that come up so it's changing all the time you know i talked to dozens of people there who will give you stories like, yeah, they, they went away or they went, you know, into a rural area for a year. They came back and the Swahili in Nairobi was completely different. It's just a living, breathing, changing, constantly changing language, which is amazing. Um, And hopefully people who do linguistics and stuff like that, anthropologists are capturing this because it's really fascinating to see um, and then you look at like Swahili uh, language rap and you see how like mm-hmm. Shang is becoming involved in that. And it's a new form of expression. Um, and, you know, they're sampling English and then they're rapping in, you know, S- Swahili Shang. It's, it's just fascinating. Makes it that is really hard to keep up with it though.
0: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, y- y- I like listening to music from the continent because it is such an eclectic mix of styles and everything. Like I love some of the, um, um blues that's coming out of the sahara desert and then the hip-hop and stuff coming out of south africa and it sounds like i need to add some nairobi rap to my
1: playlist yeah i mean if you want to like get swahili rap um i know you can get stations on some of like the international radio tuners look at look up bongo flava stations coming out of okay. Dar es Salaam. i think it's some of the best music coming out of the continent excellent
0: i'll do that thank you for the recommendation
1: you're welcome.
0: So do you think you're going to have, well, you said that you wanted to go back to do oral histories, but giving the current state of the COVID-19 crisis and it being in flux and, you know, second wave, no, yeah. um, no vaccine. Yeah. No vaccine. Thank you. Or anything like that. Are, do you feel confident that you are at a spot that assuming that you can get over to London and, and do those archives in, in Scotland and, in London itself, that you'll be able to finish the dissertation?
1: I have no idea. So I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I think if I had to finish without getting any more material I, I could, the dissertation would absolutely suffer a bit from it, but um, I could do that. I know a lot of people aren't in a position where that, that's something they can say, so I feel lucky in that regard, but I have right. no idea. I'm just taking it month by month. Um, you know, I'll do what I need to do, but Every time I've thought this is going to go one way, it goes the other way. So, like, it's so hard to say anything conclusively. And sure. I don't think I or anyone else just wants to be completely static in the situation. So I'm going to write what I can. And if I have to write around what I don't have, I'll do that. But I'm hoping to get over. That's that's still the hope. Hopefully next summer things open up or even in the spring, you know, to make a couple week research trips or something like that.
0: Right. No, I think that's probably the best way to go is to show that flexibility and at least start writing because, you know, having yeah. something akin to a draft, even if it's not a, a complete chapter because you need some other stuff to add to it, is better than waiting to go to another archive. Because, yeah. you know, as, as Dr. McMahon has, has said in classes that we both been in, there's always mm-hmm. another archive trip that you could go to, but at some point you just have to start writing.
1: Yeah, I think at one point in – I think the nationalism seminar we were both in when he was talking about like the research paper we had to do for that class. He's just like, at some point, you just got to shut up and write, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I love McMahon. But yeah, I mean, in schedules are changing and that's going to impact researching too. So like uh, Syracuse has already announced if the semester does happen in person, they're starting the semester a week earlier in August and then um, in-person classes will end at the start of Thanksgiving break. So
0: that's similar to what they've said they were going to do here.
1: Yeah. So if like if covid has retreated and there's a vaccine highly doubtful, doubtful. But if that's the case by December, I could go abroad and try to get three weeks of research in before stuff starts closing down for Christmas. Um, But you never know. There could be a second wave and this time next year. We could be like the world lost five million people in March 2021 and none of us are going to be researching then. No, that's
0: true. Hopefully it's not that dire of a situation, but it, yeah. it very well could be. Um, well, I don't really want to end it on that depressing note, but I've, I had know, you on hey. here. <laughs> I've had you on here for about an hour and I always try to be respectful of time and leave some things unsaid so that I can pester you to come back on at another time.
1: I know. Uh, um, we didn't even talk about the cool stuff I'm trying to do uh, with malnutrition and the commodification of children's bodies in the 1950s.
0: Well, we did not. We'll have to save that for another time. I know so that else could, else that's really interesting.
1: That's another thing that's uh, looking like that's going to be a chapter, but could be a book itself if I wanted it or someone else wanted it to be.
0: Well, sure. Well, OK, the, the, here's the we'll try and leave on a better note then. And I'll ask you a question. And I know that at this stage in the writing process, you're like, just let me get this one done first. I know. But um, almost everybody that I talk to, myself included, has some idea of what they want the second book to be or the second project.
1: Do you, do you have that idea? I do. Um, and actually, have you had Patrick on the podcast yet? Not yet. He has Not been um, right. difficult to nail down. Get the Irishman on. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's he's seen a little bit about this. I did a conference presentation, um, and I think that this could easily be a second book, uh, on the 1905-06 Nandi expedition in Kenya. And this is a situation where the Nandi, who are an ethnic group um, that were portrayed as being very military-oriented by the colonial state, were in a very desirable spot in Kenya. They occupied some of the richest farmland, um, you know, best soil. They were close to where they were building the Uganda railway line that was going from Mombasa to um, the, the Lake Victoria. And so what the British government did after not getting the Nandi out is they launched, launched an expedition that literally pushed the entirety of the Nandi's population off their land and into a native reserve. Um, the Nandi's We're only about 20,000 individuals at this point. The British kill about 1,200 of them. They burn the entirety of their homes. They take their cattle, which is their primary form of wealth. Um, They burn their crops. So this is it's a literal textbook ethnic cleansing. Um, But no one's put that word to it. No one's really looked at this. Um, One colonial official turned historian. Started to write about this. He was writing about the history of like the Nandi and the colonial state, but he died before he got to this expedition in his work. Um, so this is kind of just a lost thing. And I think that this is an ethnic cleansing. We should call this early colonial violence because I don't think this is a unique event. It's kind of like the violence of pacification you hear it termed as in like old school historiography. Like these are ethnic cleansings, these are war crimes, these are crimes against humanity um you have more than 1 in 20 nandi killed in this they're moved off their land so i'd like to write about that and now how nandi popular memory looks at it so i think um not that long ago i want to say within the last decade they actually built a memorial um this nandi organization did where one of their leaders were was killed and they've started calling him the first nationalist of Kenya um, so it's interesting to see like, how now this event is being remembered you know, in this part of uh, West Central Kenya as kind of one of the first anti-colonial nationalist movements. And they're using it to make land claims now because this area has become very contested in terms of who has a right to this land today. So I'd like to write about that. I think you could explore um, violence that's been largely dismissed um, and put kind of the terms that show how severe it is on it now, and then how popular memory is doing with that. So this would be another way of trying to really blend together the colonial and the post-colonial periods and show how there isn't really a rigid bifurcation here.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating as well. If um, For no other reason and that puts it around the same time as the Herero and namaqua genocide, in which yeah. we so rightly chastised the Germans for but the british are doing a very similar thing it sounds like at exactly the same time and yeah. have
1: you know. they're, they're literally bragging about it. I have documents where they're like, this will teach um, these other kind of related groups a lesson to show them that if they oh, step wow. out, like they're going to get this. They're bragging about how much destruction they're causing. They're literally cataloging um, how many cattle they're taking, how many huts they're burning. Um, and then they actually sell the cattle that they take, you know, not an insubstantial amount to fund mm-hmm. the organization, to fund this expedition itself. Um so I mentioned Patrick because my initial research into this I did as a conference paper, and both Patrick and Abby were at the conference, and I was like, I, I'm not off here. This this is an ethnic cleansing, right? And they were like, Yeah, this is <laughs> you no, know, totally, cleansing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I think that there's this kind of broader reconsideration of some of the violence of the these early colonial states that needs to happen because I think we've just largely um, or at least a lot of historians have largely dismissed it. And I think we need to go back and look at it and be like, this is an ethnic cleansing. These are crimes against humanity. Well, um, yeah. and 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 that matters today because now, with so many countries, especially like the British and the French being members of the you know International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court, states like Kenya, um, Angola can now file claims, you know to try to get some kind of compensation back.
0: Well, it also pushes back against this fuzzy recollection of colonialism that we have, and which is very similar in some ways to the way the fuzzy ways in which we remember Mussolini. It's like, well, at least yeah. the the trains ran on time and that kind of thing. And I am all for every atrocity committed, whether it be by England, the United States, wherever, in the name of these. Colonial yeah. projects being recognized and it's, called to court for.
1: It's interesting you bring up the uh, like Mussolini, um, because I initially did this paper in a, a research seminar here at Syracuse that focused on genocide and political violence, mm-hmm. and I in the paper I you know go over one of the ways they phrase this expedition is the Nandi are occupying uninhabited land and they need to get them off because they weren't like farming in a traditional. Yeah. Uh, western european sense and the professor he studies um you know the early 20th century italy who deals a lot with mussolini and he's like this is very similar limit language to what the italians did in libya uh, when they like force people off land they're like yeah there are people here um and they've been there for a while but this is really uninhabited land because they're not like actively tilling the soil in a specific way
0: it's it's very um Interesting that you bring that up to continue this chain, because Ben Kiernan, who is at Yale, I believe, um, he has released a- Blood and soil, right? Yes. mm -hmm. That is one of the signs that he talks about when you can start to recognize that a genocidal project is occurring by the use of this language, because so often it has been tied to land acquisition and forcing people off the land, that if they go- and I mean, and, and you see the same thing in talking about Native Americans here in the United oh, States. Absolutely. When college, you were wanting to take over Native lands, they would be like, oh, well, they're they're not farming them correctly, or yeah. this is uninhabited land. So that
1: language is remarkably consistent from location oh, I to know. location. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so that's the maybe second book project, if I think I need a break from childhood. But then I also have ideas of how to deal with, like, and research childhood and um, like the 1980s and 90s and sure. now the internet age like i think that should be historicized sooner than later oh without uh, a doubt but...
0: without a both of them sound i mean the the one it's going to be a heavy lift if for no other reason than the subject matter is so depressing but it is yeah. important i think it needs to be done if not by you then by someone yeah um and the the childhood stuff Definitely, because the, as as we've spent a lot of this hour saying, this is an understudied thing anyway,
1: and it really does need more. It is. It's, it's the, you know, fun might be the wrong word because some of these, these topics you're dealing with are, are serious and they're depressing, but it's a very motivating factor for doing yeah. research in places like Kenya. Is, well, it, you know, it's
0: fun in the dark humor way that we as historians often say our studies are.
1: Yeah, right. It, it's it's how you you cope with this when you're, like, reliving trauma through archival documents and interviews. Um, but I think it's really motivating when you do your research in a place like Kenya because there's just so many stones that still need to be unturned. Um, and I'm fortunate to be in a position where I get to do that at least for a little while during the PhD.
0: I think we'll let that be the last word because that's a great last word. Um...
1: All right. Thanks for having uh, me
0: on, Ben. Oh, no. Thank you for taking the time, Thomas. I'm glad we were able to work out a time, and I was finally able to have you on. It's been very informative. Um, Please take a few moments to pimp anything that you want to, whether it's your social media accounts, any causes that you think are worthy, uh, the floor is yours.
1: Uh, I'm not really a social media guy, but I mean, I would just say stay broadly aware of what's going on with COVID in Africa. I know officially with reported cases, the numbers are low, but unofficially um, there's been some evidence that, you know, there's some serious outbreaks that just aren't being reported. Like I saw someone tweeting out evidence from Mogadishu that like deaths right now are significantly higher than they've been in years past, even when violence is at a lower point. I know there are places in northern Nigeria that are seeing like large outbreaks of deaths. There just isn't testing. So We were focusing on numbers so much in um, Western countries and in North America. But I think you look at states that don't have the the resources to do that um, and to get people to places where they can test that, you know, there's a lot of death going on in these places and they're not getting the aid. Because they don't have those officially reported numbers, but that doesn't mean they're not suffering and they're not being affected. Like the Kenya economy basically shut down, at least for a little while, which really impacted people. Think sure. We're having a hard time here in the United States. They're having a hard time there. So, you know, I think people just need to be more aware of that.
0: Well, and that is something I wanted to – if you have just a few more minutes. Um, yeah. Because – Not only is there that, there's the fact that because our economy is also going through this recession, depression, whatever you want to call it, it's going to suck all of that attention. And we have, through our manipulation of the AIDS crisis and Ebola and everything else, we are an aid-giving nation. We haven't really helped these African countries build their own infrastructure because they have been able to rely on us for some relief aid, and that is most likely not going to – be available during no, this... No, I
1: mean... Just to bring it to Kenya again, with the U.S. withdrawing from the WHO, as of last year, the U.S. was, and even with the funding down from the Trump administration, the U.S. was still the largest donor to the WHO. The WHO is in the middle of, with the Kenyan government, piloting a program to try to vaccinate this experimental vaccine for malaria, vaccinate Kenyan children like under the age of four. Like Malaria still kills, I think the numbers yeah. around 40,000 people, mostly children in western Kenya. Um, a year. And now, with the US pulling tens of millions of dollars out of the WHO, programs like that are going to be paused or just never happen. Um, and literally, children could die from this. So, you know, just beyond COVID, when we act irresponsibly and we pull this money away, you know, people are giving to local businesses, into food shelters, or to food pantries and homeless shelters here, which is great, but a lot of times those donations now don't go to causes overseas. They don't go um, to, you know, UNESCO, or not UNESCO, but uh, um, oh, what am I? The the child food one. How am I blanking on this? Oh, um, Um, I know what you're talking about. Podcast brain. Uh, But they don't go (laughs) to a lot of these you know, organizations and, World Food bank and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, are really valuable. I mean, just the, m- the amount of, uh, UNESCO backpacks that I would see kids wearing in Nairobi, you know, those, those are going to stop. Um, yeah. so don't just because you're not immediately. And I think a lot of people don't immediately see what's going on there because our news organizations do such a terrible job of covering Africa, uh, and other places in the global South, that just because you don't see what's happening there and how bad it's gotten economically doesn't mean it's not.
0: Exactly, exactly. You know, and I, I realize that a lot of our listeners in the United States are also hurting, um, and no one's telling you to drive yourself into the poorhouse to give. But if you are in a situation where you can give, of course, give locally too. But do not forget giving to international, at least the good international charities that, that are out there
1: that's that's what i've like told people is if you had if you were someone that had a recurring donation set up to one of these organizations trying to help children or anyone in africa like now's the worst time to cancel that yeah yeah got it down
0: well um thank you again thomas yeah. um <laughs> despite our best efforts we have again ended on kind of a down note but i think that's just uh it's it's the state of the world it's right a, now it's
1: a- tough time it really is is
0: is. yeah um and but again thank you for taking the time and thank you for listening to the evoking history podcast
1: appreciate it ben thank you you're
0: very welcome